Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Live on tape from the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City, it's Stephen Won't you please, my friends, my neighbors, welcome, welcome one and all to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Everyone, if you've been watching the news, if you've been watching the news, everyone is talking about yesterday's historic arguments by our nation's highest judges. There were recriminations, references to stench. CNN was all over the story this morning with their top headline, The Mass Singer Reveals Who's Behind the Skunk. Thank you, CNN, for your tireless reporting on a woman's right to choose to dress up like a giant rodent and sing, I'll Be Missing You. (laughs) By the way, it was Faith Evans. She will be missed. (laughs) We also heard from a slightly less trusted body, the Supreme Court. (laughs) The justices heard oral arguments over a Mississippi abortion ban, and according to court watchers, the Supreme Court seems poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, now, come on, come on, hold on, everybody. Everybody knows that famously, you can't read too much into oral arguments. So we don't know ultimately what's going to happen, other than we definitely know. Because based on what we heard from the justices, it is looking rough for Roe, or as one legal expert put it, <laughs> Now, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, who has been seen as a potential swing vote in this case and is desperate not to make the Supreme Court a purely partisan institution, is trying to find a way to justify Mississippi's 15-week ban without overturning precedent, which is 24 weeks. And why would 15 weeks be an inappropriate line? So viability, it seems to me, doesn't have anything to do with choice. Um, uh, But if it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? So it was 24, now maybe 15. Is Roberts chief justice or chief auctioneer? I hear 24 weeks, 24, 24, 24, 15, 15, 15, can I get six? A six, I hear six from Texas. Going once, going twice, sold to the glint in your boyfriend's eye. (laughs) So Roberts seemed a little muddled about the timeline there. Clarence Thomas seemed confused about what they were talking about at all. I understand we're talking about abortion here. But what is confusing is that we, if, if we were talking about the Second Amendment, I know exactly what we're talking about. If we're talking about the Fourth Amendment, 
I know what we're talking about because it's written, it's there. What specifically is the right here that we're talking about? He knows it's his job to interpret the Constitution, right? I'd like to see Clarence Thomas in a lit class. Uh, if we're talking about Animal Farm, I understand we're talking about a bunch of animals <laughs> on a farm, and that's all it can be about. There's no mention of the Russian Revolution. Now on to my favorite book about fire safety, Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> one argument, one argument supporting Roe is that a woman's right to choose is directly linked to her access to economic opportunity. Justice Amy Coney Barrett believes that doesn't matter anymore thanks to what are called safe haven laws in all 50 states that allow mothers to renounce all parental responsibilities at birth. Both Roe and Casey emphasize the burdens of parenting. And insofar as you and many of your amici focus on the ways in which the forced parenting, forced motherhood, would hinder women's access to the workplace and to equal opportunities. It's also focused on the consequences of parenting and the obligations of motherhood that flow from pregnancy. Why don't the safe haven laws take care of that problem? Amy Coney Barrett doesn't think a woman has to be a mother. She just thinks she has to give birth. It's all in her new pregnancy guide, What to Expect When You're Forced to Be Expecting. Barrett did concede, she did concede that mandatory pregnancy might be inconvenient, but she doesn't see that as a problem. There is, without question, an infringement on bodily autonomy, you know, which we have in other contexts like vaccines. Now, I'm no doctor, but that seems like a false analogy. Vaccines are mandated because COVID is contagious. No one ever says, can you put a mask on your belly? I don't want to catch baby. <laughs> of course... The three liberal justices were not buying any of this, especially Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who pointed out that none of the basic issues have changed since the court's previous upholding of Roe, and that Mississippi's stated purpose for bringing this case now is because they wanted it in front of all these new Republican appointees. And given those facts, she asked this question. Will this institution survive the stench? It's a valid question, though that stench might just be Brett Kavanaugh's beer sweats. Or, shall we say, boof burps. <laughs> now, if the justices do overturn Roe, it will not be popular. Last month, an ABC News, Washington Post, Papa John's triple bacon pizza poll <laughs> found that 60% support upholding Roe compared to only 27% who want to overturn it. That's more than two to one. So, if it is this unpopular, why is everyone saying it's going to happen? Well, and I don't want to get too technical... But we, what's the word? Don't live in a democracy. Five of the nine justices were appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote. The last three confirmed by a Republican Senate who now represent 41 million fewer Americans than the Democrats. In fact, Republican senators haven't represented a majority of the U.S. population since 1996. A lot has changed since 1996. Back then, the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor went to Kevin Spacey. And the best director was Mel Gibson. <laughs> and the Republicans have their nominees. Gibson Spacey, 2024, still better than Ted Cruz. There you go. There you go. But, oh, in pandemic news, uh, we're still talking about Omicron. Though there is, there's controversy about how you're supposed to say Omicron. Is it Omi? Or, oh ma, how, how do you say it? Oh my. 
Thank you, Ensign. Yesterday, we learned the first Omicron case on U.S. soil was found in California, which led the state's Secretary of Health and Human Services to claim Californians were proud to have identified the first Omicron case. Good for you, Golden State. You put that kind of positive spin on all your disasters. Greetings from California, home of extra crispy trees. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's not the only case. Today, a second case of the Omicron variant was identified in Minnesota. But do not panic. It's just one person in America's heartland who recently traveled to New York City. Okay, okay, fine, but maybe he was here on business, spent most of his time alone in his hotel, getting takeout, and staring pensively out the window at all the people he wasn't infecting right after he attended the 2021 anime convention at the Javits Center. No, oh, no! Let's go to a reaction from the anime community. Damn you! Why? Why? So, Omicron is here. It is here in the United States, but don't worry. President Biden has a plan he announced today. One thing is requiring travelers to wear masks on airplanes, public transportation, and trains. Oh, good. Trains. It's reassuring to know that the guy masturbating on the Q train is thinking about someone else. <laughs> but the anti-vax community has their own plan to combat Omicron. Make up crazy crap. The newest batch of online stupid uh, maintains that Omicron is a hoax, saying lefties will be fooled again. The rest of us need to stay strong. Their proof? If you scramble the letters of Omicron, <laughs> you get the word moronic. Wow. Wow. That's what they did. That theory is incredibly Omicron. <laughs> okay, it is true. If you rearrange the letters in Omicron, you can spell moronic, but that doesn't prove anything. If you rearrange the letters in coronavirus, you can spell corn savior. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm going to bow down and worship Orville Redenbacher. There's just as much crazy over in the UK where the anti-vax cuckoos think the new variant is an evil plot to stop Christmas because over there, conspiracy theorists have found the anagram no crimbo in the Omicron variant name and crimbo is a British slang for Christmas. First of all, Britain, if that is your name. <laughs> what kind of slang is crimbo? It sounds like the celebrity couple name of Christ and a bimbo. It's wrong. Now, you may have noticed, you may have noticed, smart, alert listeners may have noticed, you cannot spell crimbo without a B. There's no B in Omicron. So to get no crimbo, British conspiracy folks use the full name of the variant, Omicron B11529. Even if you believe this stuff, you gotta see that's a stretch. Okay, we've got not letters to spell crimbo, but where do the numbers go? <gasps> Blimey, they were stolen by Hillary Clinton! She's ruined Crimbo! <laughs> we got a great show for you tonight. Coming up, a new non-exercise exercise bike. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
crazy world. This band right here, in a world of chaos and disaster, this band is one bright, constant spot of beauty. Thank you, John. Thank you to everybody in the band. Incredible. Every night. Never flawless every night. John. You know who else is extraordinary? I'm so happy to have back here is uh, Mahershala Ali, two-time yes. Oscar winner. Oh yeah! Talk about his new swan song and the New York Times best-selling author Jason Reynolds is going to be out here oh, later amazing. too. Amazing! That's going to be great. Night. Very big night here, folks. It's the holiday season, and I love all the annual traditions, like the one where you spend a month and a half eating nonstop and then get drunk on New Year's Eve and swear you're going to start working out, <laughs> and somehow it never happens. It's a Christmas miracle. Every year, people buy things like exercise equipment and gym memberships that they never get around to using. But I recently saw a commercial for a company that wants to change all that. Jim? We've all been there. You want to lose that extra weight, so you buy an expensive exercise bike. But after using it only once or twice, you realize that working out is hard. So you end up just hanging your clothes on it. That's why we created Hangaton, the only clothes hanger ergonomically designed to look exactly like a costly exercise bike. The Hangaton can handle up to two loads of laundry at a time. And unlike a traditional stationary bike, Hangaton has zero workout capability, so you couldn't ride it even if you wanted to. The Hangaton's adjustable seat can accommodate everything, from boxer shorts to full body long johns. Need to hang dry your sweaters? Use Hangaton's patented leave it near an open window technology. Why spend $2,000 on exercise equipment you never use when you could spend $1,000 on a clothing rack you sometimes use? Wait, $1,000? That's still a lot of money. It's half as much as the bike, so shut up. Okay. And for just $40 a month, you can hang with a total pro. Let's get those clothes up off the floor. I love Hangaton. Yes! Not riding a bike is cool, but what if I'd rather not run on a treadmill? Then try the Hangaton Hangatread, a non-exercise treadmill you can dump all your clothes on. And because you're not going to put anything away, the Hangatread will clean up for you. <laughs> so stop wasting money, time, and energy and start wasting just one of those things. With Hangaton, you can give up. After the break, Mahershala Ali. My first guest tonight is a two, count them, two-time Academy Award winner you know from Moonlight and Green Book. He now stars in the film Swan Song. Please welcome back to The Late Show, Mahershala Ali. <laughs> Nice to see you again. Great to be here. Now, uh, since the last time I saw you, you have won two Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, uh, and this is something that I did not know the last time you were here, is that before you were an actor, you were quite an athlete. You were a D1 college basketball player. Yeah. And this was... It's even more interesting to me in a certain way. You were, as a child, a BMX... Racer at age four. Yeah. <laughs> That's you right there. Your mom let you do this? Because it's going to be rough and tumble. Your mom she let you did. do this? She did. She did. I, um, 
I raced for six years from when I was four to 10. Wow. And um, any crazy races? Like crazy races, yeah, definitely a few crazy races. Um, <laughs> one in particular, I, I remember um, racing um, against a good friend of mine. So I, I, I raced every every weekend along with some older cousins, you know, and we were all in different, we were different age groups, different heats and whatnot. And a good friend, a girl by the name of Robin, you know, the girls would race with the girls, the boys race with the boys. But uh, a good friend at the time, we didn't have enough kids for our heat and Robin came and raced with the boys. And I remember looking at Robin like, okay, good luck, don't take this personal. And we started racing and uh, about quarter through the race, kind of felt my lungs tighten up a little bit. And next thing you know, I was having a full-blown asthma attack mid-race, you know? And so I'm like wobbling. And then I see Robin passing me butt up a little bit. And then she passes me, finishes the race, and beats me. And then my cousins run onto the course and they're like, you got beat by a girl, you got beat by a girl. You know, mid-asthma attack, which I obviously survived. But, uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, so, but some great experience. So you were beaten by a girl because of Definitely. asthma tech. Yeah, exactly, 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 sure, sure. exactly. That's why I didn't play D1 basketball, because of my right. asthma. Right, That's right. right. Same here. Now, okay, you've had a very, you've had a big month, yeah. because Marvel fans will know that, uh, and I'm not giving anything away, because this has been written up everywhere, is that in, in one of the uh, post-credit scenes at the end of Eternals, we get to hear... Your voice, yeah. as it is revealed with your voice off screen, yeah. that you are going to be Blade yeah. in the MCU. Thank you. Thank you. Now, how, how, you must be like, you must sort of like prep yourself to know you're going into the superhero universe. How has that entry into superherodom gone so far? Wow. The, is it weird? The, it is weird because the anticipation is so great. Like, there's my excitement for any role is pretty equal, honestly, because I feel the responsibility is always the same. But I've never walked into a role where the anticipation of it was so great, where people were already so familiar with the character mm -hmm. and have real opinions and points of view and all that. And so it feels different. There's, a, there's clearly an added layer of, of, of pressure, which I will embrace. <laughs> well, now, we don't see you yeah. in this at all. We only hear you. Yes. So it's basically a radio play so far. Yeah. How do you make that decision about what you're going to sound out sound like if you haven't done one day on camera? You just lose, you lose a lot of sleep over it. Like, I was losing sleep over this line because ideally, you know, you want to, you know, be talking once you are filming. You know, and 100% of the times, 100% of the time, my first day on any set, on any job, I hate it. Like, I hate how I sound. I hate, like, you know, I, I, I don't believe myself, you know? And so you're trying to, like, get comfortable in the character. So to have to talk before you're even, like, actually filming was, was, was challenging. But I'm grateful for it because it made it feel real. You know, it made it, it, it it's like, okay, now we're going. Now are you going to have to get all swole? Gonna yeah, get I got to get swole and jacked. Yeah, you got a, you got a regimen in place? It, yep, yep, mm -hmm. yep. Like 50 pounds of chicken a day I'm doing your like workout. I'm doing your <laughs> workout. Working out? Yeah, that yeah. is coffee and Ricola. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I live on these days. Now, you're also starring in this new film, Swan Song, yes. which is it's a fascinating uh, science fiction movie which raises really interesting ethical questions about identity and death. Yeah. And well, 
Well, tell the, tell the folks who you play and what your situation is. I, I play a gentleman by the name of Cameron who is presented with the opportunity to clone himself because he has a, an illness and, you know, he's, he's going to die. And, but he can't tell his family. So Why can't he it, tell his family? The opportunity, well, it's, it's, it's a secret at this point. Okay. The, the tech, all of that is very new. Mm -hmm. And so that is, that is part of the issue is that he can't share that information with his wife. And is that part of the idea to save them the pain of his death or? Um, I just think it's so early on in terms of the technology itself that it's such a secret and this is sort of in the, in the early sort of like testing phases of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so right now, you know, you're not allowed to tell anyone. And so that's part of the, the, the difficulty of the decision because he can't incorporate his wife in that, so he's he's wrestling with this information and his decision, but it's this huge secret, and um, it's something that definitely keeps him up at night. We we have a clip here. Yes. And do you, do you, what can you set up? What's happening here? I believe this is the this is the first time that he is seeing his clone, um, and at, at that up until that point, it's been sort of this idea and something that he's been sold on. But at this point now, he's actually seeing him, seeing his clone in the flesh. Generated, mapped to your DNA, Cameron Turner, to the molecule. Thank you. We have to quick break, but don't go anywhere, everybody. We'll be right back with more Mahershala Ali. Two of me. Okay, so if you get nominated, can both of you win? <laughs> Is that two Oscars right they there? They better learn to share. It deals with I mean, obviously, obviously cloning, and that that I mean that raises the idea of identity. Yeah. Who is the you? Yeah. You know, I assume this is you, not your clone. I'm talking to right now. <laughs> and uh, and I need that's a clone. that's a that's a deep question to deal with. Yeah. Who are you? Yes. And yes. do you do you know who you are? And if so, when did you know? Hmm. Well, well, it, you know, I'm a work in progress. I, I'm very much a work in progress. Um, I, it, it's something that I've asked myself for a long time. I remember I was like nine, ten years old, and I swear I used to go into the bathroom in my our little apartment, and I would close the door and I turn out the lights, and you know, your eyes begin to adjust, and you can see yourself in the mirror a bit, like. And I would just stare at myself in the mirror and I would ask myself who I was. And so, if, you know, first you like, try it at home. I encourage you. <laughs> you get past your name and what you look like and who your family is and all these things that you sort of identify with. And then you kind of start running out of questions or answers. And I remember as a kid just standing there feeling a little empty and a little scared, you know, uh, once I got down to 
past all those other questions. So it's just something I think for me, like I've, I've been asking that for a long time. Now, I, here's, okay, here's a, I'll, get, I'll hit you with a deep one, ready? Yeah. Okay, if you had the same opportunity yeah. as your character yeah. to uh, clone yourself and I assume pass on your own, your personality yeah. and yourself, mm. whatever that might be, your true self to this next person, um, and save your family the pain of the loss of you if you were in the same situation, would you do it? You're assuming they'll be in pain. <laughs> the effect. How about that? The effect, whatever it is. Phew. No. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about that a lot and all throughout shooting it and even now and seeing how the film came out. And I, and I think... I think I would, I think I would lean towards the natural order of things. And, and in part because, and even in the film, I think what, what I walk away with from the film is that in reality, we all have, we all have a better self. We all have a potential. We all have an inspired self, right? And so therefore we all have the potential to be our best self. So I want to be as present and as and, and as fulfilled as possible in the time that I have on this earth and make the, the best I can of every day and every moment. And when my number is called, I just hope and pray I, I make the best use of my time as possible, you know? Well, you... One of your performances that I greatly enjoyed was, was Green Book. And I want to ask you about a, a fellow I know a little bit and yeah. admire a great deal, and that's Viggo Mortensen. Yes. And I, what is he like to work with? Because we've done a few bits together, but he's a real artist. Oh, he's a genius. He's an artist all the time. He's a genius, 100% of the time. What, what's he like on set? What's he like just to, to hang with? Viggo is a blast to hang with. He's very funny, but very serious at the same time, meaning I, you can't really work with a more committed person. Um, He's, he, one time, <laughs> Vigo and I, I, I'll get to work, and um, Vigo's got a, a, a crow in the trailer. Is that what this is? Is that what this is? That's exactly what that is. <laughs> is that I get, his pet? Uh, that is not his pet. Vigo's got a crow in the trailer, and I'm like, yo, what's going on with this crow? And Vigo is... He decided to walk to work that day, which I'm sure security was excited about. But Vigo walks to work, and a, a crow had fell out of a tree or got hit by something. He picks up the crow, and he brings it into the trailer. And he's, like, petting the crow and taking care of it. He named the crow. And, and I'm in there, and I look at his hair and makeup people, and they're like, it's okay. And then Vigo's petting the crow, and he leaves. He walks out. And he goes, he does this all the time. He always finds crows, and like, and he just takes care of crows. And, but I, I have to add, before he walked out, I looked on his shoulder and I saw he had a crow tattoo on his shoulder. So Vigo's a bit of a crow whisperer. Um, I think that, I think I think that, that means crow, he's a wizard. If I'm not mistaken, yes, yes. That crow passed away, unfortunately, like within a couple of days. He got it to some sort of facility or something like that, but it was injured, it passed away. I think that crow got a little dedication at the end of, of the film. If I'm not, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. I think wow. the, the crow's name is at the end of the film. Wow. If I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah. I got to hang out with yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, Mahershala, thanks so much hey, for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate seeing you. Coming up, Jason Reynolds. is a New York Times best-selling author and the national ambassador of young people's literature. Please welcome Jason Reynolds. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, New York Times best-selling author, uh, you've written 17 books total, but I want to get to that title, National Ambassador of Young People's Literature. How does... How, how does... Do you get a letter from Hogwarts? What yeah. happens? <laughs> How do you get I to wish. do that? No, you get a letter from the Librarian of Congress. That's pretty close, man. Absolutely. That's kind of like a wizard. It's, it's just like a wizard. That, that's incredible. Absolutely. What, what, what are the responsibilities? I mean, you know, it's like any other ambassador. The, the typical responsibilities, or like a laureate. It's like the poet laureate system. Oh, sure. And so my, my responsibilities is to be like a, a walking cheerleader about reading and writing for young people. Well, that's lovely. Absolutely. Now, you write books. You write books for young audience, uh, young audiences, and since we're on a late night show, there may not be as many of your core demo <laughs> on, on, the, on uh, watching the show right now. W- what do adults need to understand about children's literature? Mm. And as kind of a follow-up here, is that do you write children's books? I interviewed Maurice Sendak many years ago, and he says, I don't write children's books. I write books. And somebody said, this should be for children. Mm. So how do you, like, what, what do we need to know about children's literature today? This is a, first of all, thank you for asking this. Um, children's literature is the cornerstone of all literature. It's the building blocks of all literacy. Without the people like myself who write this literature, they can't be the capital L literature writers, right? They can't be a Toni Morrison or uh, all of our famous writers today, Jasmine Ward, Kiesa Lehman, these greats that we love, unless there's somebody earlier to create them and their readership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's my job. Mm-hmm. Now, in, 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 terms of, in terms of the great Maurice Sendak's comment, I actually disagree. I think that there are a lot of people who feel that way, and that's okay. I'm okay with it. Me personally, I think that this is a task of intention. This isn't something that I did and then they placed me here. This is something that I continuously, intentionally do every single day because who deserves our intention more than children? You speak, you, you, you speak to children a lot, take yeah. questions and answers, stuff like that. Do you have fav- favorite questions you've gotten from kids? Because kids, they'll ask you questions that you thought you were smart until you heard these questions from kids. Yes, that's a fact. Do you have favorite questions you hear? Oh, I mean, I, one of the ones that I get most often is, hey, Mr. Mr. Jason, what kind of car you drive? Right? <laughs> which, you know what, which is cool. Which is cool because what it says is, one, they trust me enough to ask anything they want. Sure. And two, if I answer it, then we've created a human moment between the two of us, which is far more important than anything I'll ever say about a book. Right? So, like, that's a good thing, but that's probably the most common. Jason, hmm. what kind of car do you drive? <laughs> a, a cherry red Porsche 911. <laughs> now, that's a cool answer. Eh? Did you have to go get a cool car once you knew you were going to be asked that question? <laughs> or did that car precede the question? You know what? For years, I, I was riding my bicycle and walking. Yeah. Um, but I ended up, pandemic happened, and I said, you know what? Children's writers, we should show them. We should let them know. <laughs> I mean, part, part of your job as a writer, I suppose, is also as a, as a, as a teacher in a way. But I, I understand that you, you feel like 
part of your job is really, and part of your best experience is to learn from the children. What, what is it you learn from your interaction with your own audience? You know, I think, I think young people um, can really show us what compassion looks like. They can show us what empathy looks like. Think about it, man. Our biggest insult, our biggest critique, besides like, oh, all they do is TikTok, right? Our biggest critique is they're just so sensitive. We hear this all the time. They just know, we hear from comedians. We hear from everybody, right? They're just snowflakes. They're cupcakes. They're sensitive. When really, when you really think about it, what we're doing is insulting them for being empathetic. We're insulting them for being compassionate because they want to see the many slivers of each individual free. Imagine that. So I think we have much to learn from them if we could just give ourselves a moment of humility to listen a little more. That's beautiful. <laughs> you, you, call your, you call your books, among other things, love letters to black kids. Mm. What, is the, what is the love that you want to express? Um, Acknowledgement of their existence. I don't want to teach anything. I'm not interested in it. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a parent. I want to bear witness to their lives. I think if you can put, you know, it's a Hitchcock, famous Hitchcock quote. He said, a face is not a face until I put light on it, mm -hmm. right? And so what that says in my world, when you transmute that, is that these young people don't exist in the world if we don't acknowledge their existence, if we don't write them into the stories. Um, and so that's, that's my only real goal is to show two black kids, but for all kids, that, like, you're here and people know you're here, um, and we'll continue to love you in your existence day to day, right? And I think that's important. Your new book is called Stunt Boy. In the meantime, what's it about? Mm. Stunt Boy is uh, about a young man named Portico Reeves who has anxiety. And he lives in an apartment building with his best friend and his parents and his grandma and his parents are going through a divorce. And so that anxiety is now metastasizing in an interesting way. It's flaring in an interesting way. And so he takes on an alter ego of a, of a stunt man that he calls Stunt Boy because he wants to save his parents from themselves. Right? He wants to do the hard stuff so that the real heroes don't have to harm themselves. Um, and it's just a cool story that kids can read and parents can use as a way to discuss the changing sands, the changing sands of family that so often happen. Did you have anxiety as a child? Oh, I've, I've had anxiety my whole life. How do you deal with it? Um, a few ways. One, there's medication. Mm. And, and there's therapy. Sure. Um, and, 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 and honestly, and honestly there's, there's talking about it, normalizing it, mm -hmm. making sure that there, people understand that there's nothing wrong with us. Right? And, and that, honestly, anxiety in and of itself is perhaps just a, an elevated part of our sympathetic nervous system, which means that maybe it's not about it being a weakness, but instead being a strength that is connected to our compassion, that I'm so compassionate that the mere thought of something wrong makes me anxious, that I'm so empathetic that the mere thought of someone in pain makes me anxious. This, and, is, something, this is a good thing. And also that there might be things to be anxious about in our world right now. Absolutely. That might be one of the re reasons why it's rising. And that leads to my last question, is that you have a, um, you know, not an enviable distinction, which is that you have two books on the American Library Association's most banned books list for 2020. Mm. And what is happening to, certainly, American culture right now, uh, and certainly the politicization of American culture is very worrisome. It gives me a lot of anxiety. And I'm curious, what do you want people to know about the censorship of books in America right now? That, that first and foremost, it's not a badge of honor. 
for those of us who are going through it, for those of us on that list, it's not a badge of honor. People always say, congratulations, you're doing something right. It's like, yeah, but at the same time, there's been access cut for all the young people who might need these books and where they only might get them in schools. You can't take for granted that there may not be a library or a bookstore in everybody's community or that there may not be a $20 bill to go and buy the books that they no longer have access to because of these bannings, right? Mm -hmm. Second of all, I just think people should understand that at the end of the day, we as adults, we claim that we want our children to grow up to be better than we are. And in order to do so, they must have the information that we did not have. So to stop that information really makes us all hypocrites. And it's something that we should be thinking about. His new book, Stunt Boy, in the meantime, is available now. Jason Reynolds, everybody. This has been The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Watch The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Weeknights at 1135, 1035 Central on CBS and Paramount+. Plus. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Late Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.